Yeah, thanks, John. And um, I am, I think it's really part of God's sovereign work that for the past three Sundays or so, you know, the Lord has put it on our missions, uh, our missions team to pray for God's work among college campuses around the country. Um, in the middle of all that, we start to see this, uh, what appears to be, you know, a movement of God, a reported movement of God at Asbury, um, and start to see the the tangential effects of that in other universities like Cedarville and elsewhere. And I know that um, even before we get in the sermon, I just want to take a minute and just share a little bit about that because maybe you don't know what's going on. Like if you just Google it or whatever, you can find out that for the past over a week now, you know, there's been an ongoing worship, prayer, confession of sin, um, something very unique and and, uh, what appears to be supernatural going on at uh, Asbury College down in Kentucky. And so whenever these things come up, you know, everybody, you know, asks the the church staff, hey, what do you guys think about that? And uh, I've had to give some thought to that, and I want to just take a minute and just address it publicly. Um, First of all, here's what I want to say. I hope that all of our hearts long for God to move powerfully in our country. Um, I hope that, that, that we are eager for that. And I hope that whenever God does it, that we cheer it on and fan the flame and worship God and, and celebrate what he's doing. So if you pay attention to what's going on, you know, you see this stuff in Asbury and you have people who are like all about it. We have people from from uh, Cedarville have been greatly impacted by this. We have uh, people, deacons in our church who have driven down to check it out for themselves and see what's going on down there. We have other people from our church who have done the same thing. Um, We have some people in our culture who will speak critically about this whole movement and have things to say about it. And so here's here's what I would say. I have just two thoughts that I want to share with you about this. When it comes to this movement at Asbury or any other reported work of God that we hear about across the world or in our lifetime. First um, John tells us that we should test the spirits and hold fast to what is true. So let's not just blindly, you know, accept everything that's reported our way. Let's, let's look, let's pay attention, let's discern, hold on to what is true. Um, and at the same time, here's what I'll say. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus gives a very strong warning to people who have seen clearly the works of the Holy Spirit and they credit it to Satan. And Jesus has very harsh works, hard, harsh words for them. He calls it blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I remember reading that years ago and here's, what it, here's just what it did to me it made me very slow and careful to see something where God might really be working in a way that I don't quite understand. It's not my normal way of experiencing life. It's made me careful to see those things and then just automatically drop like a heresy label on it. Because Jesus cautions us strongly to not credit the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. We need to be careful about that. At the same time, we need to Test the spirits and hold fast to what is true. 
So I would just say, church family, let's hold those things in tension. Let's trust the Word of God to guide our thinking. Let's trust the movement of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to reveal to us what is true. And here's what I'll, here's what I'll say about Asbury. I'm praying for fruit. Like, I am praying that there is fruit coming out of this that lasts. I'm praying that God moves through this situation at Cedarville, the other universities where there is uh, true fruit that lasts for the sake of the gospel. Wherever revival goes, Jesus is going to be proclaimed. All right, so we're going to be looking for the proclamation of Christ. We're going to be looking for repentance of sin. We're going to be looking for not just a momentary experience, but life that is changed for the long haul. Um, And time will tell as we go by uh, which are true movements of God and which are just temporary experiences, right? So um, so I, I would just like us to uh, carefully think about this and carefully, you know, respond when we are asked what we think about the, the issues around Asbury. And I would also ask that we would long, ask God to give us a longing in our hearts to see true revival throughout our, uh, our country. Actually, I just want to pray for it right now. So, Lord, there are, we, we live in this world, Lord, that is, and at least in our Western worlds, that we're so not, we're not used to supernatural works. We like to be able to wrap our minds around everything. I think we are, we're, when we're uncomfortable with something, we can default to criticism. So, Lord, keep us cautious in our criticism. And, Lord, keep our eyes and our hearts discerningly open to what is true. So, Lord, we admit that we need your help balancing that. And so, Lord, what I, uh, what I want to ask, Lord, is that you would please work in a powerful way through all the events of Asbury to make the name of Jesus great in our country bring people in our country who are far from you, close, bring brokenheartedness over sin. I pray, Father, that there would be a turning to you, especially young, among the younger generation, the college students, those who are um, most impacted by this. Lord, would you please do it again? Raise up another generation of disciples in our country who would follow you with their whole heart and impact the world for you. Lord, I pray that you would let our hearts long for that and when we see it, Lord, to celebrate it and cheer it on. I ask, Lord, that you would bear fruit that lasts through this whole experience. And I pray that you would help us as a church uh, be eager to see the lost saved, to see your children walk closely with you. And Lord, that you would let us stand firm on your word and walk closely with your Holy Spirit through all of this. So Lord, we commit this to you and um, we love you. And we thank you that you love us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So uh, I guess I'll preach now. Um, I kind of already started that a little bit, I guess. But um, if you have your Bible today, you can open it up to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to be today. So I want to extend uh, just a warm welcome to all of you who are with us today. Like John said a few minutes ago, um, whether you're in person or online, whether you're here at Maine or at East, um, we are so thankful for you. And uh, especially if you're new with us today, thank you for joining us. Again, our mission really is to help people know Christ and make Him known. 
And so that's why we're here as a church, and if you're new with us, we're glad that you're here. We hope that you truly do know Christ and have a life that's committed to making him known in the world. And so if you're joining us here for the first time today, it will be helpful for you to know that on our Sunday morning services, uh, we've been preaching straight through the New Testament book of Acts. Um, This is sermon number 42 in this series through the book of Acts. Uh, Bill Letcher preached sermon number 41 for us last Sunday. Um, Really appreciated Bill coming and bringing the word. And just as a reminder, we will be voting on his candidacy to come on staff. We will be voting on that tonight at our members meeting. So if you're a member of our church, we hope that you'll come out and be a part of that. Um, So last week, Bill preached from Acts chapter 17. And so today we're jumping into Acts 18, which means that if you're new with us or if you've never studied the book of Acts before, there is a a lot of backstory here that will you need to understand in order for Acts 18 to make sense. So let me quickly summarize the backstory leading up to Acts 18. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He pulls his disciples together and he commissions them out to be his witnesses in the world. He says, I want you to be my witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that statement from Acts 1-8 gives us basically an outline for the book of Acts, where in Acts chapter 2 through 7, the disciples are bearing witness to Jesus in Jerusalem. Um, In chapters uh, 8 through 12, um, the disciples start to witness uh, about Jesus in the regions around Jerusalem, the regions of Judea and Samaria. Um, In Acts chapter 13 and following, we start to see the Apostle Paul and missionary partners taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 13 and 14 are all about the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, Acts chapter 15, we see that there's this big event called the Jerusalem Council. And then we get into Acts 16, and we see Paul launch into his second missionary journey with his friend Silas. And so let's go ahead and put the map up on the screen, and we'll just kind of retrace the steps uh, so far on this journey If you see over on the right side of the Mediterranean Sea, you can see that there's a city called Antioch. That's called Antioch of Syria. And that's where Paul and uh, his second missionary journey began. So he goes north and then west over into the cities of Lystra and Derbe. And that's where Timothy joins with Paul and Silas in their mission. They continue west from there over into Troas, across the Aegean Sea, into the region of Macedonia to a city called Philippi. Um, people are converted there. They come to Christ from Philippi. They travel southwest a little bit down to um, Thessalonica and then to Berea. And in Berea, if you remember in Berea, hostility came against the Apostle Paul. He had to be escorted out of town by uh, uh, separated from, from Silas and Timothy. So Silas and Timothy stay in Berea. Paul is escorted out of Berea down into Athens. And uh, like we'll see, you know, today, Paul goes from Athens over to Corinth. And like we'll see next week from Corinth, Paul travels back east again over to Ephesus and then east even further back towards uh, Jerusalem and um, Antioch. So we'll get to that next week. But for today, we're going to be in chapter 17 where the Apostle Paul is, um, you know, or excuse me, today we're going to pick up from chapter 17 where we left off with Paul in Athens And what we saw last week in Athens was that Paul would preach not just to the Jews, but also to the Greeks and the Gentiles. We saw last week that when he was preaching the gospel to a Greek, non-Jewish crowd, he changed his approach a little bit. Instead of immediately appealing to scripture and the Old Testament scriptures like he had commonly done with 
the Jews who accepted scripture. Now, instead, he appeals to the Greeks by saying, hey, I see that you're religious people. He finds some common ground with them. He starts out talking about creation and the God who made the world. And from there, he starts to move from creation uh, kind of inward down towards the message of this God who made the world. He actually doesn't want to stay distant from you. He wants to come close to you. You can feel your way towards him. You can sense God moving in your heart. He's made himself real to people like you through Jesus Christ, who will one day judge the living and the dead. And he has rights to judge the living and the dead because he himself rose from the dead, um, conquering the grave. And so Paul, you can see in his witness to the Greek world, started big with creation, general with creation, and then moved into Jesus in particular. And so last week we saw that, you know, when we share the gospel with the largely unbelieving world, people who don't accept anything about scripture, we can see there's going to be three types of responses. Sometimes God will open people's eyes, they'll believe. Other times, some people will be interested. They'll ask to hear more later. And uh, absolutely, sometimes people will just flat out reject the message. Nevertheless, that's just like it was for Paul in Athens. It will be that same way for us today. Um, But like Bill shared last week, the, the big point is true. Really, the best way to make an impact in our world is to introduce people to Jesus. And so that's what Paul was doing in his ministry in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And so today we're gonna pick up in Acts chapter 18. Today we're going to work our way from verse 1 down through verse 17. I want to draw several teaching points along the way, make a few applications at the end, and those applications will all tie into the main idea of this passage. And here's the main idea. You can be confident that as you faithfully follow Jesus, God will faithfully be with you. You can be rock solid, 100% sure, confident, that as you faithfully follow Jesus, God will faithfully be with you. Now, let's see how that point comes to bear um, in our text for today. So let's look at chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So let's talk about Corinth for just a second. Corinth, as you probably know, is, a, is a, still a modern-day city in Greece. Um, it's about 50 miles west of Athens. Um, the city of Corinth is basically still in ruins today, but... It was much different back in Paul's day. It was kind of a a big, vibrant city, lots of commerce, trade, eclectic culture going on there. Um, But uh, about a couple hundred hundred years before Paul's lifetime, around 150 BC or so, the Roman Empire conquered the city of Corinth. Um, And when they did, they they killed all the Macedonian men that were there. They took the the women and children and sent them off and sold them off into slavery. And part of the custom of the Roman world would be to essentially kind of reestablish these cities. And so um, what you would see is they, they kind of went through a process of clearing people out after they would conquer a city, and then they would bring Roman citizens from elsewhere back into that city to reestablish it. And so um, by the time we get to Paul's lifetime, you know, the, this city, you know, the Roman Empire had, had a bunch of people come reestablish in the city. Lots of people with different religious backgrounds, Greeks, pagan worshipers, but also included among them, uh, the Romans had also sent Jewish people to uh, reestablish their community in, uh, in Corinth. And so it's a very diverse, eclectic um, city, but it included Jews by the time we get to Paul's lifetime. That little fact is going to be important to understand what's gone on here in just a minute. So keep that in mind as we continue. Verse 2. He found a Jew named Aquila, 
a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Okay, so now you got to remember that ever since Berea, Paul had basically been a lone missionary without Silas and Timothy and his missionary friends. So he comes from Athens into Corinth. He meets this guy named Aquila, and it says that Aquila was a Jew. And although it says that there in Corinth, we also see that Aquila, um, you know, his native town was, or his native area was from Pontus, which is a region just on the southern edge of the Black Sea. So we learn that uh, Aquila eventually got married to a woman named Priscilla. Isn't that cute? Aquila, Priscilla, what a cute little couple, right? Uh, so they, they get married. They eventually go and live in Italy, in, um, in Rome, and from these verses, we can see that when the Roman ruler Claudius came to power, that he kicked the Jews out of Rome. And he, if you read history, you can find out they kind of got tired of dealing with all these kind of problems that would uprise between the Christians and the Jews and the Jews getting upset with the believers. And he basically just said, enough with you guys. I want you out of here. And he sent them out. And so um, Aquila and Priscilla made their way into uh, into the city of Rome, or into the city of Corinth, and that's where they met Paul, right? So just a little bit of backdrop of history that kind of helps you understand what's going on. You see God's sovereign hand at work bringing, you know, working out the details to bring Paul and Aquila and Priscilla together. Well, he becomes good friends with them eventually, and he stays with them in their house. Look at verse 3. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So You'll sometimes hear people talk about the Apostle Paul and that he was a tent maker. Um, apparently sometime in the Apostle Paul's lifetime, he had learned this skill of making tents. He would use that skill from time to time to bring in money and provide resources for himself while he was doing his mission work. But here he connects with Aquila and Priscilla and immediately he's got some things in common with them. First of all, they're, all three of them are tent makers. So they share that trade. Second, they're all Jewish so Aquila Aquila's, uh, has a Jewish background. We know that the Apostle Paul had a Jewish background. But third, we also see that they're all believers in Christ. Because we see that Aquila and Priscilla take Paul into their house. They house him as a missionary. We know this, like just kind of reading ahead in the book of Acts, that Aquila and Priscilla actually become leaders in the church in Ephesus. They take a man named Apollos and show him the way of Jesus more clearly and and we're going to see that. And later on in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy, he mentions Aquila and Priscilla and talks, to them, talks about them as being beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they're believers, which is interesting because where did they come from? They came from Rome in Italy. But as far as we can tell in Acts so far, Paul, Paul hadn't yet traveled there and preached the gospel. So how did they, how did they become believers? Well, apparently, there were believers in Rome before Paul ever got there, and we know that for sure because we have a book in our Bible called Paul's Letter to the Romans. He hadn't yet been there to to preach to them, yet he had heard about their church. And so the question is, how did there how did there get to be a church in Rome? How did they, how did Aquila and Priscilla hear the gospel and come to Corinth as believers from Rome? Well, again, studying the book of Acts chronologically like this kind of helps us make decent guesses about how that probably happened because remember what happened in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. 
And at Pentecost, we had Jews from all different regions that came to the city for Passover. The Holy Spirit came, a great outpouring. Many people were saved, and after some time, they returned to their homes. So it's very likely that Jews from Rome were in Pentecost. They eventually went back home, took the gospel of Jesus there, and one way or another, Aquila and Priscilla become Christians and make their way to Corinth eventually where they connect with Paul. I think that's pretty awesome, and at the same time, I can't prove it to you, so I, am, uh, I think it's a good, a, a good guess, though. Um, just discredited everything I just said right there, so <laughs> uh, you guys can roll with it. All right, on to verse 4. Here's what we do know for sure. It says that in verse 4 that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, all right? So this is Paul's normal strategy. He goes into a city. He looks for a synagogue where he can preach. He goes and preaches there. He testifies, Um, and so that's what he's doing, and it says when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So again, remember, Paul had kind of been by himself apart from uh, from Timothy, apart from Silas. Um, for a while now, he was apart from them in Athens. He's been apart from them in his time in Corinth. And they had been left in the city of Berea up in the region of Macedonia. And so remember, Paul told these Bereans that had escorted him down to Athens, um, he said, hey, go back up to Berea. Go back up to Macedonia and tell Silas and, uh, and Timothy to catch up with me. And so that's what's been going on, right? These guys have been trying to retrace Paul's steps and hustle and catch up with him. And I can imagine that when they finally got reconnected, like that must have been an absolutely like happy reunion. And the reason why I say that is because there was a time in my life where uh, when I was in my 20s, I, um, you know, I backpacked through Europe. I had this emergency situation rise up where I had to come back to the United States. And then from the United States, I went back to Europe. And here's, here's what I knew. I was supposed to catch up with my friends somewhere in Germany, okay? All right, and this was like before the day of smartphones and, you know, you can kind of just drop your locations to each other and stuff. Like, we just kind of had to figure it out. And so you're stopping in hostels and asking people questions. I can't speak German, so I'm hoping somebody can help me understand the language. Eventually, I ended up reconnecting with my buddies and we had a great reunion. So to me, I'm kind of you know, imagining something similar to that when Silas and Timothy finally catch up with Paul from Berea. They, they make their way to him here in Corinth. I can imagine that was a happy reunion. But even when they reunite, you can see that, you know, Paul was just like devoted to the mission. It says in verse 5 of our text that in Corinth that he was occupied with the word. That word occupied, it means that he was fully committed to it. It, it, was, it was like constraining him. He was compelled to do it. Um, and so we see him, once again, compelled to go into the Jewish synagogue and share the gospel there. Paul was consumed with sharing the gospel. It's why he would write later to these same people at the church in Corinth. And in his letter that we now call 2 Corinthians, he would write chapter 5, verse 14, Paul would write this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul says to them, you know, he writes to them in in 2 Corinthians and he says, the love of Christ controls us. He was controlled by his love for Christ. He, He no longer lived for himself. He lived for Jesus. 
And I just wonder, like, have you ever met anybody like that? Have you ever met anybody who, like, their, their love for Jesus was the all-controlling thing of their life? It was what they committed their life to. They were consumed with helping people know about Jesus, living for him. And that's what Paul was like. And that's what it means when it says that he was occupied with the word. And we see here that he's sharing it with the Jews. So as we've seen in our previous texts, once again, the Jews who hear the message, a few of them believe, but most of them hate what Paul is doing. So problems arise again. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Like, I read this stuff and I chuckle about the Apostle Paul. Because I'm like, I, I would just love, I would love to see how offensive he is to the polite American church, right? Like Midwesterners in particular. Uh, you know, he's, you know, he's just shooting them straight. And he just tells, you know, like, well, I keep getting rejected here. He's obviously got some frustration going on. And he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. But the principle that I wanted to remind us of from this is that once again, as we've seen all through Paul's missionary journeys, He's faithfully living for Jesus, yet still opposition and hostility comes his way, which means you and I should glean that principle and we should understand that when we're following Jesus, it's not going to be a smooth road all the time. It's, there's going to be struggles along the way. It's going to be hardships along the way. So we don't need to buy in to some of this ideology that if, if we're following Jesus, then, and if, you know, he's blessing us, then, you know, uh, you know, there's never going to be trouble. Well, that wasn't true for Paul. It wasn't true for Jesus Christ himself. Uh, there can be trouble along the way. So that's what Paul received here. Um, so he shakes off his garments, which is kind of similar to Jesus' teaching to the apostles before when he sent them out to the world. He says, preach the gospel in these cities, and if they don't hear you, shake the dust off your feet and, and move on. So this is similar to what Paul is doing here. He says to them, your blood be on your own heads, because I am innocent. In other words, Paul is saying to them, I've done my responsibility. He shared Jesus with them. And he's saying that if they rejected Jesus, and if they died, and they were under the judgment of Jesus on judgment day, and they were condemned to hell, then it was nobody's fault but their own. Because they had rejected Christ. And so, because they rejected Paul and the message of Jesus, and because the Jews were continually hostile to him, he just decides he's going to go to the Gentiles from now on, and Again, I think this is funny because he like, what we're going to see is he walks out of the synagogue and he literally walks to the guy's house next door, okay? Look what he does in verse 7. It says that he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, <laughs> right? All right, I'm going, I'm done with you. I'm literally going next door. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now catch this, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I love that statement. I'm with you. No one's going to harm you. I have many in the city who are my people. We know that the Apostle Paul was getting frustrated. He shook off his garments and, and you know, said, I'm moving on. 
We also know that he was discouraged and, and weak because when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, hey, when I first came to you, I came in weakness. And I think that's because he kept preaching to the Jews, but man, they kept rejecting him and bringing hostility against him. He actually writes in, in 1 Corinthians 1 and he says that my message to the Jews was a stumbling block to them, right? The Jews were waiting for a powerful conquering Messiah. And Paul's coming and saying, no, that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was a suffering servant. He's going to come again as a reigning king, but he first came as a, a suffering servant. And, and the Jews rejected that. That message of Jesus was a stumbling block to them. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that his message of Jesus wasn't just a stumbling block to the Jews, but it was also folly to the Greeks. Because that ties into what Bill was preaching last week, that when Paul proclaimed to the, to the Greeks, this Jesus resurrected from death, they were just like, forget that. Like, that's, that's, fo that's foolishness. You know, we're not, we're not listening to that. So Paul was getting discouraged. And it was in that exact moment of discouragement that God showed up and met him right where he was. God speaks to him. And God says to him, Paul, I know it's hard. I know you're getting hostility everywhere you go. You keep getting beat up. But God says to him, don't be afraid. Keep preaching. Don't shut up because why? I am with you, Paul. I'm not going to let any attacks come on you here in the city. And I've got people here who are already mine. So I want you to catch what God is saying to Paul there. Like, only a few people had believed by this point, right? This was, we had like Crispus and uh, Titius and maybe a couple others, Quilla and Priscilla, but, but God is saying, I have many people in this city. In other words, God's saying, there are, I have sheep who are not yet in the fold, but they're coming. They're going to be here. I'm not going to let your ministry get shut down. They're going to come. And so even though the masses in the synagogue didn't believe, like God was working. He promised his presence to be with Paul through it all. What's the main point of this text? You can be confident that as you faithfully follow Jesus, God will faithfully be with you. That's the point. And God is making that promise to Paul, and, and he's saying, Paul, even though you know, you're receiving hostility, I've got people who are, are already here. They're ready to believe. God made Crispus, the, the synagogue ruler, ready to believe. That's a powerful conversion. You're talking about the guy who was the ruler of the Jewish synagogue. Crispus converted. What about Titius, the next door neighbor to the synagogue? He was ready. Many Corinthians ended up believing. And what does the scripture say? That after those Corinthians ended up believing, what was the very next thing that they did? They were baptized. Many of these Corinthians who believed they were baptized because baptism was their natural public response to their inward commitment to Christ. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, walking down an aisle after a church service or raising a hand or filling out a card. Their, their way they solidified their identity with Christ was to do what? But to be baptized publicly in the community of believers. So God is using Paul to reach people in the city. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So 18 months doesn't seem like a super lengthy period of time, but it's actually Paul's second longest time period that he spends with any of the churches. Remember how long he stayed with Thessalonica a few cities back? He stayed with them for only three weeks and a church got started there. Here he stays in Corinth for 18 months. We're going to see later that he stays in Ephesus for like three years. But here he stays 18 months. 
Imagine if we had a missionary living with us for 18 months, right? He, they would get to know us. They would, that missionary would, like Paul, he would, he would know their faces. He would know their names. He would know their stories. He would have seen some of their conversions. We read in 1 Corinthians that Paul actually baptized some of these people. He would have known some of their struggles and their sins that they were dealing with. So Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months. That really helps us understand how he can speak so personally to them in his letters, uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, later in the New Testament. But Paul stayed there for 18 months. It says, um, but when, verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, so Achaia is the region around the city of Corinth in Greece, a proconsul was a governor, Gallio was the, the governor of that region, history says around 51 to 52 A.D., but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. The tribunal is literally like a seat where judgments occurred, like a literal judgment seat. And so they, you can see it today in the ruins of Corinth that there's still a main tribunal seat there, a judgment seat there. And so in verse 13, it says that they brought Paul, the Jews brought Paul before this tribunal, before Gallio, saying... This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So they're frustrated with Paul's ministry and the shakeup that he's bringing. And so they didn't agree with him that people should worship Jesus as Messiah. Yet he's persuading people to believe that way. So they bring Paul before Gallio on trial about this. And let's see what happens. Verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Okay, so... What's going on, right? Like Gallio, he basically refuses to deal with these Jewish concerns and he says like, you know, this is religious matter. These are, you're, you're nitpicking about Paul's words. Like if this had something to do with violent activity or physical brutality, you know, then bring it to me. I'd have to rule on it. But this is religious words. I don't want to rule on that. So he instructed the Jews to handle it that, themselves and he sent them away but then we read that a guy named Sosthenes, who's a ruler of the Jewish synagogue, gets taken and then is brutally beaten up. So there's some debate about verse 17 and how it should be interpreted, but here's my understanding of what's gone on here. Apparently, this man Sosthenes has replaced Crispus as the ruler of the Jewish synagogue sometime during that 18-month period that Paul was there. This is likely because Crispus, as we read back in verse 8, he believed, he became a Christian. Paul, again, says that he baptized him in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So Crispus, you know, becomes a believer. It's very likely that the, the Jews, the Jewish elders removed him from his role ruling the synagogue and put this new guy in named Sosthenes. Well, guess what happened to Sosthenes? Sosthenes also became a Christian because later in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul refers to this man Sosthenes as a fellow brother in Christ. So it's likely that the big problem that the Jews had is that now they had two of their synagogue rulers 
who became followers of Jesus. They didn't like this. They're blaming the Apostle Paul for preaching all this. So now they bring the whole matter to Gallio. And Gallio says, I'm only going to accept your complaint if there's a vicious crime. So the Jews made one happen by beating up Sosthenes. Okay? And yet still Gallio just ignores their concerns. That's my take on it. But honestly, that's what happened to Sosthenes isn't even the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not what did happen to Sosthenes. The point of the passage is what did not happen to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul did not get punished. His ministry didn't get shut down. In other words, God kept his word to Paul that he had said to him in verse 10. Paul, I will be with you. No one in the city is going to harm you. I have people in this city who are mine. So he was protecting Paul. He was progressing the ministry of Paul. So we can look at this story in Paul's life and we can see the big idea of this text. And the big idea of the text is this. You can be confident that as you faithfully follow Jesus, God will faithfully be with you. So with that big idea in mind, three takeaways for us. Here's the first one. For the believer in this room, here's your first takeaway. Regardless of your occupation, be be occupied with the word. Regardless of your occupation, your job, your career, be occupied with the word. Now, when I say the word here, I want to be clear. I'm not meaning be occupied with Bible study. Remember, when the Apostle Paul had this situation going on in his life, he didn't have the 66 books of the Bible like we have. He didn't have the 27 books of the New Testament, right? He So when it says he was occupied with the word, it meant that he was occupied with the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ. He was sharing the gospel. That's what Paul was doing in this text. And that's what you and I have the wonderful privilege of doing as well. It's that we have the wonderful privilege of proclaiming to people the good news of Jesus. So here's my question for you. Are you occupied with helping people know Jesus? Leading up to this sermon, I have prayed over all three of our services that at this point in the message, God would give you ears to hear what he's saying to you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you occupied, consumed, constrained, compelled to share the message of Christ with the world? With all my with all the love that I have in my pastoral heart, I want to ask you that because I think, I think that some of us in this room need to be honest with God today. All of us in this room need to be honest with God. But I think God is going to speak to some of your hearts and He's going to say, you know, you have been occupied with other things instead of the message of my Son. Some of us get occupied with our career. We are fully devoted to our progress in our work. We are ambitious there. Some of us are fully devoted to our education, our studies. It consumes us. Some of us are fully devoted, consumed by the cares for our family and our investment in our children and our loved ones. Some of us are, are, if we're honest, we're fully devoting ourselves to lesser important things like our kids' sports and activities, like our favorite sports teams and events. We're all in on those things, but if we're honest, 
We have not been occupied with helping the world know about Jesus. Maybe the Lord will show you. Maybe, you, maybe in this moment, maybe you have a hard time remembering an honest moment the last time you really cared that someone came to know Christ. And I just want to say this again with love and tenderness in my heart, but if the Lord is speaking, hey, that's true of you and you need to listen here, then what is next for you needs to be good, old-fashioned, conscience-cleansing repentance. And you need to get your heart right with the Lord. It's so easy to get off track. It is so easy to get occupied with the things of the world. And if you're there, then you need to get your heart right. My prayer over myself, like as I think about preaching this to you and I want to live this out myself, here's been the two things that I'm praying. Lord, if I'm occupied with anything more than you, show me. Lord, I want to help someone know you, so use me. Those are my two prayers. Lord, if I'm occupied with anything more than you, show me. Lord, if Lord, if you want me to show you to someone else, use me. Would you make those things your prayers as well today? Because I believe, I believe that if we open our hearts to the Lord, I believe he'll use us to reach lost people. I believe that God has many people still in this city who are his people. 38,000 people here in Beaver Creek, I believe God wants to save some of them. Over almost a million people in the greater Dayton area, I believe God still wants to bring some of the sheep into the fold. So I'm believing that. And I'm asking you to pray to believe with me because it will shape the way we witness to the world. Like, if you believe that God actually has people in this city that he wants to save, you trust that, that's going to affect the way you share the gospel. You're going to share the gospel with people and you're going to know, yeah, some people aren't going to believe. Some people will want to talk more, but some people are actually going to get saved. And I, you know, I look at this and I'm like, I'm asking the Lord, like, Lord, will you bring us more stories of conversion, more stories of salvation? Can we celebrate the baptisms of people who you have saved through the ministry of the people of our church? Right? I'm lo- I wrote in my notes, I'm looking forward to the first person who gets saved in the new building. And then, you know, what my next one is? No, not baptism. Why do we have to wait that long? Like, can't God save people between now and the time we move into the new building? Nothing's stopping him. Like, there's nothing magic about that place. Like, God can do it right now, right? So it's like, okay, Lord, please move and use us to help people know you. So regardless of your occupation, be occupied with sharing the word. Here's the second takeaway, tied right to that. Be occupied with sharing the word, but leave the conversions to God. Be occupied with sharing the word, but leave the conversions to God, right? That's the second takeaway. I share that because what we see in our text is that the Apostle Paul was absolutely devoted to sharing the word. There's no doubt. But when the people in the synagogue rejected him, what did he do? He literally just went next door. And sometimes I think that we may need to realize, like when we're sharing the gospel and we really long for some people to believe like Paul did, some of them may just not be ready yet. And at the same time, the Lord may have somebody right across the way who is. Remember, Jesus gave his apostles permission to go preach the gospel, and if people reject you, he gave them permission. 
shake the dust off your feet and move on. And sometimes we may need to do the same thing. It doesn't mean we stop caring about those people. It doesn't mean that we stop having concern in our soul for them. We do care for their soul. But at the same time, there are other people around us that God may want to use our proclamation to to share, to uh, reach their hearts with the gospel. So sometimes we may just have to move on. I'm sharing this with some of you because I think there's maybe some people in our church who, like me, um, at times in my past, I... I feel like if I've shared the gospel with somebody and they don't repent of their sins and believe in Jesus like right there on the spot, then I feel like, man, I'm a, I'm a witnessing failure. Surely I did something wrong, but what I have come to realize, and I just, I've said this before and I want to say it again, guys, the gospel is not a Jesus sales pitch. We are not responsible for closing the deal, right? The gospel is a message for us to proclaim God seals the deal. We are, respon- we, we are not responsible for making people believe it. We just get the privilege of announcing it. So let's be occupied with sharing the word, but leave the conversions to God. It's God who moves people to accept Jesus, and we're not responsible for the people who reject him. Which ties right into the last point, and then I'll wrap up. If you've never done so, Accept the message of Jesus today. Be baptized soon. If you've never done so, accept the message of Jesus and be baptized. So Paul preached the message. People like Titius Justice and Crispus and Corinthians, man, they were believed. They were forgiven of their sin. And everybody who's in this room too, you are a sinner. You need to be forgiven of your sin. And as we saw in the message today, If you refuse to believe upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, then your blood will be on your hands. Not on the church that hurt you, not on the Christian who let you down, not on the hypocrite that you can point out. Jesus Christ is not a hypocrite. He is perfect and sinless in every way, and He is God, and He died for you so your sins can be forgiven because He loves you. And if you choose to reject Him, the blood will be on your hands, nobody else's fault. We have a clear message from the scripture that those who reject Jesus, like Bill preached last week, those who reject Jesus will come under Jesus' judgment and will be separated from him on judgment day into hell forever. That's the bad news. But praise God, because of Jesus, there's good news. And the good news is that Jesus made a way for sinners to come home to God to escape hell, to escape judgment, to have their sins forgiven. And by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross in your place and took the punishment for your sin on the cross of Calvary, you too can be forgiven and you can be saved. That is the good news. Jesus saves sinners. And just like we saw in our text today, people who get saved, their next step is to get baptized. So for you, Maybe you've believed the gospel in the past. Maybe you believe today. The way that you show it, your next, the next step for you should be baptism. So if you haven't been baptized, but you've believed in Jesus, you should be baptized. Because what have we seen in the life of the Apostle Paul? Following Jesus doesn't mean your path is going to be easy. When you follow Jesus, things are going to be hard. And here's how that ties into baptism. If you won't follow Jesus into the baptism waters of a friendly church, it's very unlikely that you will take up your cross and carry it and follow him in the midst of a hostile world. 
So if you've been holding off on baptism, it's time for you to repent and obey your King Jesus. If you've never done so, be saved. Be baptized soon. And if you are saved, following Jesus, then what's the big point of this text? You can be confident that as you faithfully follow Jesus, God will faithfully be with you. Lord, we commit this uh, time to you as your word has been um, proclaimed. Lord, I want to ask once again, just as we did in the first service, please give your people ears to hear what you are saying to them. I pray that right now, even in this moment, that each of us might pause and contemplate, Lord, what are you saying to me? And so, Lord, if there are those who have never repented of their sin and believed in Jesus, Lord, I ask that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would believe. I pray, Lord, that you would move some people's hearts to profess that belief through baptism. I pray, Lord, that you would move the heart of every true believer in this room to consider whether or not we are truly occupied with helping the world know you. And Lord, I think this is an area where our church as a whole has some room to grow. That we would become deeply concerned about the lost around us. And Lord, we pray that by your grace, you would use our lives and our witness to see more lost people come to faith. And that more of your sheep who are in this city would be brought into the fold. So we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.